From Washington, D.C., you are listening to Rule of Law Albania with Albi Cela. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of Rule of Law Albania. Today, my guests are Daniel Fingenberg. He's a former fellow, Fulbright Fellow in Albania, a New York lawyer and currently a consultant. And the other one is Erdogan Shipoli, a political scientist and founder of Shipoli Ventures here in Washington, D.C. Today with Daniel and Erdogan, we'll talk about U.S. foreign policy, Kosovo, Albania, and the Balkans in general. Um, so to start, we're first going to talk about the Kosovo deal, which was struck in Washington, D.C. Uh, on September 4th between Kosovo and Serbia with the mediation of the Trump administration. Um, so Erdogan, Daniel, sorry. Um, the agreement was struck, like it's been more than one month now, and people have been largely discussing whether actually it was a real agreement or not, or it was just a show. What's your opinion on that? Well, it is a really interesting deal. And uh, thank you, Albi, for having me back. And Erdogan, it's always great to speak with you. Uh, but the deal is really, really interesting from the fact that uh, there's a couple of competing uh, arguments on this deal. The first one, and that's held by, I feel like, more people that I talk to and that I've come in contact with, is that this was a lot more of an electioneering move. So the deal was to help project President Trump in uh, a positive light as really doing presidential things to help him with his election. From the legal perspective now, I want to talk about this deal that you saw three different uh, pieces of paper that were all signed. Each one said something significantly different. You could maybe make an argument that the, if Kosovo and Serbia signed uh, the same deal and then exchanged and had both their signatures on the same page, that there could be a legally binding deal there because the provisions were close enough. Uh, but what Trump signed, President Trump signed, was certainly not part of uh, a deal because his was more of a witness statement saying that he was there and helped negotiate this uh, economic uh, entanglement between the Kosovo and Serbia, this economic recognition, and then the much more interesting part, which is even closer to, I guess you would say a deal, was the recognition by uh, Israel of Kosovo and Serbia to move the embassy to, Israel, uh, to Jerusalem. But from the legal perspective, I really don't see this as being much more than a political uh, electioneering move because there is not the meeting of the minds, you know, all the legal terms that we use to describe what really makes something binding under international contract and treaty law. Yeah, basically, it's just if you read the language of that agreement, let's say we're going to call it agreement, but in fact, it's not an agreement. Uh, if you just read the language, the language is so vague, the terms used there, the points made in there, like there's nothing binding in there. Like even international treaty law, first of all, you need to sign the same document, same terms to have an effect. The parliaments need to ratify it and everything. Nothing happened like, and we just see what happened after the deal was struck. Like only two days after it was signed, Serbia signed a deal with China for the 5G network, which was, which was prohibited in the agreement. And then yeah, we have you, all these events that happened. The, you saw a lot of the, the agreement to not seek recognition and to not continue the, the the plan of de-recognition, the campaign of de-recognition, and almost instantly these two things were thrown out. That was the other way that you could have legally seen this deal mean something in international laws is if both 
states would have treated the deal as legally binding uh, on them. But instantly, uh, Serbia continued its derecognition campaign. Kosovo continued to appeal to international organizations and the, its friends to help them be recognized uh, as a state. So neither from the legal, like hard treaty law or from state practice and general principles, can you really see that this was uh, yeah, a yeah. binding international agreement that, as you rightly point out, LB. Yeah, and then Erdogan, we have like the timing in which uh, th this deal was struck. Like it was back in um, April, May and June, like we have the Thatchy indictment. Like it, firstly, the meeting was supposed to happen back then. The indictment happened. It, it looked like it was a game from the EU trying to stop the meeting in DC because the EU was trying to say, look, this is our house. This is happen happening within our borders in Europe. Why should it happen in DC? Uh, so do you think it has any relations, first of all, with that? Like the Thatchy indictment, and now that the deal is struck, do you think Thatchy is trying to get something out of it at this point with everything that he's doing? So there are, um, first of all, thank you for uh, rehaving me, uh, Ali. I enjoyed last time, and now it's even better uh, being on the same uh, talk with Daniel. As always, it's very um, you know, fun, and, and I'm very glad to speak to both of you. So. If this deal does not have, uh, does not have any uh, legal weight, I can also say that politically it was a waste of time, waste of resources, waste of everything. First of all, if the Trump administration wanted to, uh, which I think they did, to uh, announce this or to launch this as, uh, as the, the genius of Donald Trump on striking peace deals, international peace deals, that didn't happen. I mean, actually, even like uh, two, three days after the deal, uh, Richard Granell had to write his own opinion for, I think, even for The Hill or for another, um, or for another uh, outlet saying nobody picked up, no media picked up this, uh, this great deal. So he had to write his own, uh, his <laughs> own opinion, which, you know, it shows that it didn't have any effect. Of course, then they pushed for it to the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, blah, 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 and all those kinds of things. Going back home, first of all, we need to understand that there is no lack of uh, agreements, e even binding agreements between Kosovo and Serbia. For how many years they have been signing the same document that are supposedly to be legally binding document in Brussels, but the implementation has been a mess. They haven't been implemented. Actually, uh, I was talking with some uh, other friends and I was saying, look, right now, what they need to do is they need to stop this talk. And if they only implement what they have signed until now, that will be a good, pro a great progress, what they signed in Brussels. So now we have to see, why did Serbia do it? Well, Serbia did not want to lose uh, the Trump administration's uh, support. And they have a lot of support in Washington, D.C. today uh, with Trump administration. So for them, it was like, okay, good, let's sign it. It doesn't mean anything for us. We can see this in the mimics uh, of Vucic when he signed and, and, and Trump said that uh, the last point makes, uh, I mean, uh, make Serbia bring the embassy to Jerusalem. And he was like shocked, like, oh, is this in here? Uh, and also in his speeches when he, when he went uh, back to Serbia. But for Kosovo, 
remember that it was this deal that got the current government elected or pushed. So for them, it was like, okay, good. We're going to implement anything, um, uh, anything that the Americans tell us, which is, of course, we can discuss for that un until the morning. But at the end of the day, uh, America has any American uh, administration has strings that they can pull in Kosovo. And of course, Tachi is an important uh, player. Uh, Tachi is an, is an important uh, game setter in Kosovo. And it has to do a lot with his indictment. It has to, to do a lot. This is not the first time that the rumors about his indictment are, are there. It has to do a lot with him visiting uh, Washington DC currently, or with him making unannounced visits to New York and to, uh, and to DC from time to time. We know that last year, if I'm not mistaken, he was in New York um, at a restaurant meeting Vucic personally. So uh, of course, these all have to do with, uh, with Tachi being an important player or game setter, agenda setter in Kosovo and his uh, type of, of ruling uh, that I call, you know, I always said that he's going to, to make a deal, whatever it takes, as long as he's going to secure his survival for one month, one year, two days, it doesn't matter. And do you think yeah, that he will go that far as to sell Kosovo's interests? So, um, first of all, any economic deal for Kosovo is good. So just because Thatcher uh, thinks only of his interest, in my opinion, it doesn't mean that everything he does is bad for Kosovo. But I personally think that he will do anything necessary as long as it secures his survival. But look at this deal. They are calling it an economic deal. Very interestingly enough, I have students that I mentor. So I'm uh, my wife and I were trying to teach them analytical and critical thinking. So these are high school students. So what we did is we got this deal, gave it to them, asked them to do a one week research for the background of the deal. What does it have? Why were they signed? Who are the players? So they can think analytically. All right. And then we went into the deal and we saw, you know, how bizarre the deal is. They call it economic, um, economic, uh, deal economic agreement, but only one third of the document talks about economy, which and a lot of it does not make any sense. Most of the most of the agreement deals with things such as uh, stop the due recognition and the rec uh, and the seek for recognition. So first of all, okay, this is bad when you read it uh, at it first. So imagine you are Kosovo or you are the Prime Minister of Kosovo, and you are signing an agreement that uh, stops you from seeking international uh, recognition from international organizations. You know, this seems really weird, and some people can call it treason, right? But at the same time, think of it. It's, it's for, for, for more than 10 years, Kosovo is trying to get those, uh, those recognitions. Were they able? No. So what will change for one year? It will not change too much. They can make preparations that after one year, they can seek recognition from those international organizations which are not recognizing Kosovo yet. All right? And Albi, I'll just jump in. 
Colby, I'll just jump in there and say, I don't think Sachi even has enough political uh, leverage or the ability to give any international treaty to sell Kosovo in the first place. Uh, even uh, as we've seen with uh, treaties in the past, you can join a treaty, but then not follow any of its provisions. And so you've, you're legally bound to have given away Kosovo if, if your worst case scenario came through, but nobody in Kosovo is going to respect that and nobody's going to enforce that. So then have they really even gotten rid of anything uh, is, is always the question. And at the same point, if Tachi does some, something like this, even Kosovars are probably going to you know, speak up and really make sure that he's not staying in power. Uh, we're seeing enough protests around the world these days that if once you reach a tipping point, that it's eventually going to go. And if so, Tachi tried to do something that extreme, it's just not going to work out for him. Well, Daniel, I, I actually agree with you, most part of it. But one part that I don't agree with you is sometimes we undermine the power that populist leaders have. Now, uh, remember that Tachi also brought the uh, decades-long idea of Serbia and Russia about par partitioning Kosovo. And he actually supported that idea. And he didn't, he lost support, but he still has so, some support in Kosovo that will not, uh, that he will not lose. So for, for example, what can he, what can he do is, yeah, he can, he can make such a deal of partitioning Kosovo and giving part of Kosovo to Serbia. He will cover it in another, you know, in, in some other ways. But again, as you said, there are so many international deals that were made that were not implemented. So also of that, how are you going, how are they going to implement, even if Kosovo is, uh, is divided? The worst thing that, that could happen, and you know that, I don't know about the worst thing, but my biggest fear is Kosovo to become another uh, Bosnia in terms of, uh, of governance. And that is going to be a big problem because you cannot take any decision. You cannot take any economic decision. You cannot take any political decision. You cannot take anything. And, I, for once, uh, have no doubt that Tachi will be okay for that if it is going to serve his personal interest. But I hope right, that, that really problem. would that really would lock in Tachi's power long term. If you have this uh, an agreement like Bosnia, you know the Dayton Accords is the only international agreement that functions as a state-owned constitution, which it makes it because it's an international agreement. You have all these other interests that make it so much harder to reform. The government and you have to get equal uh, uh, agreement from the Bosnians, the the Croats, and the Serbians all in the same one to reform that uh, the the constitution of Bosnia. And you've just seen how much of a legal issue this create has created, even with an international law. And it'd be a really shame because it'd make the Western Balkans just that much more complex if you have another sort of international regime governing uh, Kosovo uh, and taking away the the statehood uh, or divvying it up so much where the, the country of Kosovo isn't even economically sustainable anymore. And I, I, I'm right there with you. That's the biggest fear that of what Thatchi could do and uh, uh, what a continued Trump administration could potentially empower. Erdogan, anything to, yeah. add, to add in here before we move uh, on? I, I think that we all, we can all agree that this agreement does not have a lot of, or any, judicial weight and it does not have any uh, political weight. Uh, in Kosovo it might have some political weight just because the government that is now running the country came out because of this agreement 
and then we we need to wait and see what other players such as Tachi or others uh, are willing to do are able to do but as an agreement i don't think that it worked in any way for america kosovo serbia it had no way politically and also judiciary like legally yeah Tachi is doing everything he can to trade what he has to get some benefit from the us the us is taking that to undermine international uh, court systems to continue to press like U.S. bilateral treaties. And, and that's one way that um, Kasachi has been able to go back and forth between the U.S. because he does have something to trade for the, the current uh, Trump administration or the, the political deals. Okay, just one yeah. last thing on, on the deal before we move on. Like there was this thing I, I didn't like uh, that both Trump and Grenell said uh, during the deal. It was like this, they, they let people believe that it, the Middle East was involved, first of all, in this deal. <laughs> they didn't like many people were like, okay, go read the tweet. It does, he, did, he didn't mean that, but it was like, just go read the tweet carefully. He was implying that. He was uh, appealing to his voters, to his supporters, like, look, I'm bringing more peace to Muslim majority countries. And the second one is that Grenell, something that Grenell said twice here in Washington, D.C. and in Kosovo, like two weeks ago, he mentioned the word perceived conflict. And I honestly didn't like them. And I don't know, Erdogan, you can start with these and then if Daniel has something to add. Well, you know, there, these are uh, like, um, these are crazy comments uh, from anywhere you look at it. So Granel saying perceived conflicts and then just hours later, Trump saying that these people, they were killing each other, hundreds of thousands of people died. And then I said, hey, you know, what's going on? Why don't you hug each other? They hugged each other in the whole office. So wait a minute, is this a perceived conflict or were hundreds of thousands of people dying? So, you know, decide. So this shows how less interest in the administration and how less uh, lack of knowledge there is about uh, about the, um, about the region. Now, I think everything is about timing. So, one thing that Albanians were very successful despite uh, despite being you know small in population, and despite like Kosovo Albanians, they had no economic or military power, especially in the 90s. Uh, in relation to, to Serbia, uh, one thing they were successful was the Kosovo coast. They were able to explain the Kosovo coast. And if you talk to, to American diplomats, American policymakers who were on the table, what they were saying is, look, one thing that we were mesmerized was that the Albanians from wherever they were coming, they were together. We don't always knew who pulls the strings but we knew that they are together. So if we were going against one, we could not put them against each other. Serbia was not like that. Bos Bosnians were not like that. They told me, right? So now you just see that Serbia had 20 years to work in Washington, D.C. to convince some people that the Kosovo that Kosovo was a perceived conflict, that Serbs were the victim, that, you know, and all this blah, 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 while Albanians were just celebrating that they won Kosovo. So basically, the Albanians have won a sprint. But what happened, Serbs continued to, to run a marathon. And that is, I think, very interestingly, 
Serb Serbia and, and, and Serbia has uh, a lot of access in Washington DC among Democrats and among Republicans and among the Trump administration because I personally don't see Trump administration as a traditional or established uh, Republican party. So that is one. The second thing is Trump will say, I mean, Trump is a problem. He will say whatever he needs to say. If Kosovo needs to be in the Middle East, who cares about where Kosovo is? He needs to say Kosovo is in the Middle East. I'm helping the Middle East peace process. He will say it. His supporters are gonna believe it. I'm from Kosovo. If I go to, uh, to his support base and tell them that Kosovo is not in the Middle East, most probably they will tell me, Erdogan, you don't know anything. Uh, Kosovo is in the Middle East. But that really doesn't matter. Tomorrow, Trump will come and say, uh, no, uh, Israel is in the Balkans. Again, the same people will not tell him, no, Israel is not in the Balkans and stuff like that. So these are all discourses that he knows the people that he's uh, talking to no, don't, don't matter. What, what, I has, uh, what I thought first was that he wanted to get some more credit by this discourse, and he didn't get that credit. Even though he put Kosovo in the Middle East, he didn't get that credit from, because his support base will support him whatever, in whatever he does. And his people that are a little bit not his core support base, they didn't really care and they knew what was going on. The, the thing about, um, uh, I mean, the lesson to be learned here, I think falls in the Kosovars. Because for 20 years, they have tried to say that we are not a Muslim country. For 20 years, they have tried to say we are this, we are that. I know personally that uh, Thachi's wife, Thachi, they, they used to say, yeah, we, we used to, let's say, fast during Ramadan, but we cannot do that now because Americans don't like it. Nobody from Americans would have a problem with Thachi fasting or praying or something like that, but it was this perceived think that I need to be more American, I need to be more European, and, and not fast, not uh, uh, pray, or, which I, I don't think that's, that's a big issue, but these are the complexes that the, uh, um, the, the Kosovo elite have. And now you have, a, you have the US president saying that, bro, whatever you do, you're a Muslim country because, country because I need you to be a Muslim country in the Middle East, and that's who you are. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add on what we basically all know these days. The American political uh, discussion is so fragmented today that if you say something four different ways, all con contradicting each other, the sources that you come from are only going to pick up the one narrative that is most positive to their viewership. So if you, it doesn't matter which thing you say, it's going to, the message is going to reach each different fragment of the uh, the Facebook world, of the Twitter, the social media world, and the same thing uh, with the, what Grinnell said versus what uh, Trump said with the, the large amounts of bodies or the perceived conflict. Uh, I, I always dive into this because that is at its essence what the Genocide Convention says. The big debate is over whether there was genocide in Kosovo, right? And so th there's this perception there has to be an actual group of people being killed and that group is very arbitrary so you have to have that group be assigned and so as long as serbia aren't recognizing that there was a group killed there's not technically genocide by the, the international law which is again just 
uh, another form of international politics, which makes this all so messy and what obviously is going to make you so upset, Albie. And uh, my last point, just for a little bit of a lighter note on that is, uh, I was consulting in the Middle East. If they would have let me count my years of Balkan experience, they would have had to pay me a lot more. So I, I, I wish I would have known that it was the Balkans was in the Middle East a lot earlier. Well, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I could have applied to jobs in DC that deal with Middle East if I knew that you know sooner or later they're going to make Balkans part of it. So. Okay, so just let's just jump across the border now from Kosovo. Let's go a little into Albania. Like in Albania, it's a lot going on right now. Uh, we have elections in seven months. The political environment is, is not so good right now. We have a government that is trying to hold power for another four years, which would be, I think, devastating for Albania, so-called democracy. It will be like the first political party, first government that will that would stay in power more than eight years. I mean, it has been, uh, let's say, like kind of Americanized thing now also in Albania that in the past 30 years, there has been a change of governments at least every six to eight years, depending on the things that happened um, in Albania. But one of the most important events in Albania, like I actually started four years ago, like the judicial reform. Back in 2016, um, the Albanian parliament actually voted um, the judicial reform. Both parties agreed on it. Everyone was so happy. And now four years later, it seems like things are falling apart. We don't have a constitutional court. Judges have been vetted out, corrupted or not professional enough. Same with the Supreme Court. And now also the Court of Appeals looks like it's going to have the same fate. Like, and the cases are piling up, especially in the Supreme Court and the Constitutional Court. Uh, Daniel, this question's for you. Like, what went wrong? What happened? Like, what didn't the US foresee in Albania that we reached this point? So this goes very directly to my Fulbright Fellowship uh, in Albania. Uh, it was going to be September 2017. I had put together this big research plan because I'd been studying Albania for six to nine months before this in order to prepare for uh, my report that I was going to focus in on how you were seeing economic development and governance development because of the success or of one year of implementing judicial reforms in Albania. At this point, I obviously arrive in Albania. It's a year into it and judicial vetting hasn't even started. I think the first one happened a couple months after I arrived in Albania. So end of 2017, or maybe it was January sometime in that range. So one of the key things that I really found was that there are so many Americans and Europeans who were implementing these fully Western systems. This worked when we helped develop uh, German, Germany after the Second World War. We then tried to put it into all these different systems where you had varying levels of democratic uh, traditions of uh, certain civic duties that were understood within the US and within uh, Western Europe. That when you just take these big chunks and drop them into another place, they're never going to work. Uh, we see a lot of work, uh, great writers like Thomas Crothers and uh, and Applebaum, who are all talking about how you have to start tailoring these projects to fit individual countries. And you have, you're bringing in experts from these countries to talk about it. But there's this dynamic within Albania and Albanian uh, ethnicity that they're so used to not having the trust of others where you bring in the experts on their culture and they're not telling you actually what their culture was. I had so many 
so many uh, conversations when I adjusted my project to understand why judicial vetting wasn't working, where I would hear that, oh, no, we're just like Americans. And they'd list off all these things that they thought were just as American as apple pie, as we like to say. And I'm like, okay, so I know this isn't your culture because you just described my culture. And we just took a coffee for the last three hours of you explaining this to me. And you would have done that like in a couple of seconds if it was uh, an American conversation. So it's about our inability to understand what really is going on within the country. It's too easy to drop into a place, be like, okay, we know we need to get you here, just get there. And we don't, it hasn't always taken into all the accounts, uh, all the, the, the hot pasapi, the step by step that must do it to build the faith within the Albanian community, because they just don't have the same trust. Uh, and I've worked very closely with all these people with the OSCE and the, in Albania, and I've seen all the great work they're doing. They're doing all the things right, but there's just this disconnect that's based off of that history, that culture. Uh, I mean, just the way Albanians speak with the Albanian language is so much more complex for how many different things can mean things within the language. And so it's just that uh, we're not developed yet as development professionals, as rule of law practitioners, as governance practitioners, to really make that cross-cultural communication um, possible within the judicial vetting. And, uh, you know, that's why we have to use great people like Erdogan, who actually understands that and get him to put his input into it. So I'm going to let him explain the, the really intricate details of Albanian, uh, Albanian-ness, as I like to call it, and American. Uh, well, you know, I'm... Uh, I. I'm as an American as apple pie. No, I'm joking. I'm not. <laughs> as an Albanian, I like to think that. So now, uh, actually, one thing we Albanians culturally do a lot is we tend to understand about everything. So when you come and ask me, there was a game between uh, uh, North uh, Northern Macedonia and Kosovo. If you come and ask me, hey, Erdogan, uh, how what would you do differently for a win of Kosovo against Northern Macedonia? Most probably I would tell you, okay, I would put this guy in the game. I would take this guy out at this minute, blah, 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 blah. Although I don't know anything about, uh, about soccer. So when somebody comes and, and asks political scientists like me uh, about judicial vet vetting and, uh, and, and legal systems and stuff like that, a lot of us, tend to give answers, but our, our answers are mostly uh, politically motivated. So, but I think that to, to be able to make these changes, we have to see also from, from the political part of it. I agree, I totally agree with you, Daniel, about uh, you know, the legal part and, and the, uh, the, the, the legal process that it should entail. But at the same time, we have to understand that uh, Politically, when something drags for too long, there is so much uh, more opportunity. There are so much more opportunities for it to get corrupted. I personally think that is what didn't uh, that didn't have to happen in Albania, and that it dragged too long. Now, at the beginning, both uh, all the parties were looking this fa favorably, right? But then there was time and uh, enough time for certain political elites, doesn't have to do only in one part, political party or the other, can corrupt this into their own 
um, interest. So me, I think that this, um, I agree with, with Daniel that you know, uh, it has to do a lot with, with culture. It has to do a lot with how it was explained. And we can get into this conversation from the democracy point of view as well. Okay, we want democracy in Middle East. We want democracy in Balkans. But how, what kind of democracy? It needs to be tailored. So I guess legally also those um, things need to be tailored. But now, uh, unfortunately, I'm not a, uh, an optimist that even if there is a change of government, even if, if the other party comes there, it's... Uh, uh, the uh, this legal vetting and and, and the legal uh, reforms are gonna go fast or are gonna have a lot of progress because it dragged for too long and now in either the 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 party and the government are gonna use it for their own uh, interest and corrupt the system accordingly and so will the opposition if it comes to power. Now we are living in a region where we think that uh, the, 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 the judiciary is a tool for the executive. So whoever comes there or whoever continues to be there, they are going to think, how can I use this for my advantage? Not how can I set a good system that can be there for the good of all. It's all, my survival is the most important thing. Remember in, in uh, in, in the Balkans, there's, everything is about survival because things change very, very fast. We have people that, that have been very powerful and then in a, uh, in a minute they lost all their power just because of an international indictment, just because of an international rumor or this or, or that. So unfortunately, I see that uh, the, the judiciary branch is seen only as a tool instead of a system that is going to uh, that is going to secure the rule of law or, or the, the, the democratic path or everything else. Yeah, and that's exactly, that's the next layer of all of that. When we're talking about the judicial vetting, when we're talking about the laws of Albania, there's always the, I don't know if it's a joke you'd call it, but we took in and we took all the best practice laws. We put the best laws ever into Albania, but then they're translated. Some of that meeting was lost, meaning was lost in translation, so they didn't work quite perfectly well. So then we're like, okay, now we know the best thing for you to do is now fix this. So then something else was fixed. It was put in. It was translated. It was debated. Like, okay, so we know what we're doing now. We have the system where we, it allows us to negotiate things and to make it more tailored towards us. But then that enters into that political dynamic. The same thing happened with the vetting. We have this perfect judicial vetting, but we set out the standard that would have, you know, let's just say it was a way more judges that could have been vetted out by the, the, the original standards. But if they would have vetted out every single judge, you would have had no more judges left and you would have had a complete breakdown exactly. of the system. And we saw similar challenges with Kosovo with their judicial vetting. And all of these places, you know, the EU enlargement reports come out and they all say some progress which we have no idea what that means. It just means that they're continuing to do the reforms that we've told them or the EU has told them to do or the US has told them to do. But what does that really mean? Because legally you're doing, you're following the law now, but the law is still not, like it's not good governance. It's not good rule of law, but you're following the law. And now it's hard to 
keep making improving that wall when all the improvements over the last 30 years since the early 90s hasn't seen benefit for anybody except for those who are always in power. Yeah, just and I think yeah. I think that educational part of it is very important. We're following. We should follow the law. Why? People should know that following the law, even even if it doesn't seem that it is uh, going to. Uh, it will be at your advantage following the law, the rule of law. And yeah, so the podcast is called the rule of law uh, in Albania, but following the law of the law and the rule of law will help you sooner or later. The lack of law or the instrument, uh, the politicization of law will always come back to hunt you and to bite you. We saw that in Turkey. We saw that in other places. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, everything that you said, and also I, I think that you mentioned about how it, it is explained to the people, but I also think that education, educating people about the importance of, of the rule of law and the importance of all these judicial reforms is as important. Yeah, and I'm going to plug the last lesson that I'm doing with my Jessup students. I also coach the Albanian Jessup team. And this whole week, our whole conversation is what is the object and purpose of treaties? What is the spirit of the law? And why does the spirit of the law matter? Because in the end of the days, you're not making laws just to make laws. You're making them for a reason. And that reason should be to you know, make everything better for everyone. And that's really what the spirit of the law is, is this specific thing is going to make everybody's life a little bit better if everybody follows it. And so finding and identifying what that spirit of the law really makes my law students think critically about why what the context is for why we're talking about this law what the law is and then what the law actually says and how that all three of those elements tie into each other just, just one last point like this, i think the biggest failure on this judicial system and judicial reform and we've talked about this previously is that along with the judicial reform there should have been uh, educational reform or the, especially in the, in the law school, like legal education. And it's something that I've spoken with, with one of my professors here. And regrettably, like he said that, yes, that is something that the U.S. should have done there. Like, okay, we are removing all these judges, these prosecutors, corrupt, unprofessional, but who's, who, who's going to fill in those positions? We'll still have the same production. We'll still have the same students. We will still have the same student that didn't have the proper legal education to make the system work better. I mean, we are not educated. I mean, I heard, I never, I used to hear the word constitution only in TV when I was like in high school and stuff, but I, I never knew what the constitution meant. What was the constitution? What was the purpose of the constitution? But I, I knew it because I come from a family with legal background. I read it just out of curiosity and stuff. But most kids in Albania know nothing about it. And I... If you see here in the U.S. at least, I, in, at some degree, kids are taught like some principles of the Constitution. I saw a few weeks ago there was this cartoon like explaining the Constitution and everything, how how the system how works here. the law. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was amazing. That was beautiful. Like at least you you show that to kids. Kids start understanding understanding how the how the government works, how the system works. Well, in Albania, like we grow up frustrated. <laughs> And then we come to this reality, we just shout at the government, we don't trust the government and, and anything because we know nothing about how the system works. And that I believe is something that we should have worked on 
uh, while doing the judicial reform. Well, Erdogan, I saw. I don't, I don't, now, the thing is that we are expecting to put the same resource and get a different product. Yeah, exactly. Well, you see, first of all, the reason why people and you know with with all due respect i'll be I, I know how important law is for you and you know you're an albanian uh, idealist and i can speak all good things about you but uh most of the people in albania in kosovo in in the balkans i can say they want to be they want to study law is because uh being a lawyer being a judge is a good um a, a good Power, money. It, it has a power and stuff. And at the same time, it pays well. It's like also being a, a doctor. So people don't want to study law. Most of people don't want to study law so they can bring justice. But rather, the first intention is, you know, having a good status, a social status, and economic status. But most importantly, the what are the biggest uh, what are the schools that produce the biggest, like lawyers, judges, prosecutors, are state-run universities. And usually those state-run universities, the, uh, the, the uh, law departments are the most com competing departments. And a lot of people, a lot of friends that I speak to, a lot of students that I speak to, they have to have connections to be able to be expected, uh, accepted in, in those in those schools. So if they use those connections, if they use different bribes, if they use to get accepted into law school, what kind of judges, what kind of lawyers are they going, going to be? So you are putting this uh, re resource, you are putting this raw material and you cannot, I mean, uh, there are limits of what you can expect. You cannot expect someone to have an epiphany and say, yeah, now, you know, I talk directly to God, so I'm going to rule uh, justly or something like that. Yeah, just in the interest of time, we'll move on into our last section. And we're going to cross the ocean now and go where <laughs> we are, actually, in the United States. Like, a lot is happening also in the United States right now. Uh, the pandemic, everything, and now we are getting close to the elections. We are just a few weeks away from the elections. Everyone is happy, everyone is scared, everyone is troubled. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, polls show that Trump might lose, fingers crossed. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the US elections, they don't just affect the US, let's face it. The US is considered to be like the strongest nation on earth and everything that happens in the US, we want it or not, will affect the rest of the world, will affect the Balkans and will affect Albania and Kosovo. Uh, as well. So how do you see the U.S. elections? How do you see them go? Which direction? So this section was going to be quite a bit longer two weeks ago when we were started planning this podcast episode. But since then, we've seen uh, President Trump come down with coronavirus and his numbers, his polling numbers have gone out of reach for especially Michigan and uh, well, and always for New York, where the biggest Albanian populations were, where they were likely going to have some uh, noticeable impact on the election this year, because uh, uh, President Trump re-election victory is most likely going to include a state like Michigan, uh, where the, the Albanian persons would have a fairly large say with the close margins, uh, but also with the uh, 
allegations of uh, domestic terrorism with the kidnapping of Governor Whitmer. Uh, Michigan's really just out of reach for President Trump now is what it looks like if the polling numbers hold and likely going to expand with that sort of development. New York was never in uh, tape uh, in, in reach for President Trump. Uh, so the Albanian interest in the election uh, is not going to have as big of an effect on it. Uh, the only place that we could still see it, but again, with the recent developments in Michigan, Gary Peters, uh, the Senate, if we're talking about a uh, full, like there's a couple different ways, blue wave or blue tsunami are the two most likely ways with um, Democrats winning both uh, the, the House and the Senate, as well as the presidency with Joe Biden. And now with some of these latest developments, you're looking at the possibility it's not unfeasible that the Democrats are now going to get above 54, 55 seats, which is would be a tremendous uh, advantage for um, the the left side of the Democratic Party even. Uh, so um, Albanians don't have a whole lot of influence in the election this year. It's really going to be about uh, that civic turnout uh, that uh, all, uh, Americans are uh, known for and are encouraged to do. Um, Erdogan, I, I think you might have a little bit of a different opinion, especially if we uh, look at some of the states that have more Balkan ideas. and. If things, you know, don't stay the way they are, if they really tighten, um, there's some places where uh, that Michigan race, especially that Albanians could be in for. Just one one little thing before Erdogan starts on this. Like in New York, for example, Elliot Engel, he lost. Does this show that the Albanian vote is shifting? Should there be any concern? So I, I was pretty interested in this, but this, Engel's been around for a long time. Uh, it's a very interesting election year this year. Uh, voting, the primary was in, within, uh, you know, the middle of coronavirus. Uh, Engel just didn't get out as much as he could have and would have if there wasn't the pandemic going on. So I don't know that there's a huge um, change for the Albanian diaspora, but at the same time, there does seem to be the initial division because Albanians are very young in America and a lot of the young ones have now come of age. Uh, and so there is uh, some issues there for the older, um, old the vanguards of the Albanian diaspora, who's going to be next. You know, there's enough Albanians in New York and Michigan where they're still going to have a big voice and they're still going to be an important representative, but I think it's just going to shift more towards the, the that more minority candidates, the more left-wing candidates. Okay. Oh. So how I see this is, um, and I've, I've gone in almost most of the places where Albanians live and most of the places, so we've done programs with Albanian youth and, and Balkan youth uh, throughout the country. Now, first of all, Albanians don't have that influence that they think they have. And the most, to be able to understand this, and you know, I, I agree with, with Daniel that you know, it's, uh, it's not that they will have a, a big influence. And the most important thing is they, don't, they are not concentrated in, in one district. Right? And, and we see this with Elliot Engel. I don't think that Elliot Engel lost because Albanians didn't vote for him, but I think that Elliot Engel lost because other people also didn't, didn't vote for him mostly. Albanians, what Albanians can do is they can build alliances. So, okay, Elliot Engel lost, 
I think it was smart for the Albanian community in New York to invite the, uh, um, I, I forgot his, uh, his name, uh, who was elected uh, instead of Elliot Engel. So they invited him for a meeting with Albanians. He went, they, they uh, talked about their cause, what matters to them. And this was a good, a good meeting according to Albanian um, you know, activists in New York. So I think this is what they can do. However, there is another thing. Uh, sometimes, uh, yeah, uh, Congressman Bowman. Uh, Bowman, Bowman, yeah, Jamal Bowman. So sometimes the races get so tight that it doesn't matter uh, how small your community is. Remember that during the Bush Gore elections, uh, Florida decided the fate of the American. Uh, presidency and the presidency and the American elections uh, and by by 1,000 votes. So if there are 501 Albanians that can shift from one party to another in Florida in such a tight race, which well, I'm not sure that, that sorry, it will be You think such that a tight can race. happen in Michigan, for example? Because last elections, Trump won by 10,700 something votes. Well, well a little bit. Um especially this year, it's going to be really, really interesting because as Erdogan pointed out, the the Supreme Court actually decided the Florida election. They just got to a point where they said, okay, we're not going to count any more of these votes because we can't figure them out. And mm -hmm. so if we're getting into this point where so many votes are being invalidated because signatures can't match, and then if, if you have a, a, a process that basically allows you to say, yes, this is my vote, and get notified that your vote was rejected, it's still going to take so much time. And is the Supreme Court, especially one that's divided 4-4 and maybe uh, maybe it's already favored towards the Republican side of this, which we've seen in the past with uh, election uh, results within the Supreme Court, um, with election uh, laws, the Supreme Court generally defers on these political issues to whatever's already in effect. And so if the politicians within Florida were saying, we just have to throw them out, the Supreme Court's just going to side with that. The same thing if it happens in Michigan, if it happens in Pennsylvania, Florida, again, you're probably just going to see that if this comes down to a few thousand votes, and it could go either way on whether or not votes are counted or not. Yeah, it's, it's very possible to happen. And that's, especially if the polls close, tighten up, and get close, it's very, very likely to have these types of legal battles that would make it. And that's why I think everybody is encouraging everybody to go vote to see, and if we can make it so that one side clearly wins, uh, if they turn out um, the most amount of people who are interested in this election. Erdogan, if you have a small comment but on that, that before we jump in. Yeah, that is, that is I, mean, I agree that, you know, so American politics, American uh, elections are so complicated that measures like these, measures of 1,000 votes uh, are, are, not, are not really something that, you know, we can rely on, on or we can make analysis of, okay, Amer uh, Albanians' votes in Michigan are very important because Albanians, Albanians in Michigan are 10,000 people and the votes uh, and you know, actually, the elections can come that, actually, down that, to they, 1, they claim they claim they have thirty-two thousand votes ready to vote. 
maybe, maybe. So look, for example, Bosnians live in Bosnians live in uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. All right. So some Bosnians say we are 100,000 people. Some Bosnians say we are 40,000 people. You don't know how many of them vote. You don't. So these are calculations uh, yeah. that I don't think we can rely on, especially of, because they are not. Uh, they don't have a, a kind of block that you know asks for causes. Now Albanians, there are Albanians for Biden, there are Albanians for Trump, but what are their, their causes that yeah. they, are, uh, they are putting forward, we don't know. So that, that being said, about the American elections, remember that the Trump administration and Trump as a candidate has come with a, with a long, uh, with a lot of uh, things that we have never heard before. So we have to also factor things such as uh, the, um, the role of the governors uh, if the elections are too tight, the role of the political will to transfer power, the role of the Supreme Court. And I mean, I'm, I'm an international relation political scientist, so I cannot go without saying, uh, without mentioning the role of foreign interference, such as the Russian hack or things like that. Okay, so now let's go back like, okay, let's assume Trump wins the elections. Knock on wood. Um, what is going to happen in the Balkans specifically? Like, is, is the foreign policy of the US going to be the same as it has been the last four years? Is there something going to change? Um, I think Erdogan and then Daniel. I think you have to tell me what's the UN foreign, US foreign policy in the last four years for me to be able to, under, to answer that question. The thing is that it's very unpredictable. You don't know, and I don't, I don't really know. As someone who studies US foreign policy, I don't really know what is the US foreign policy. You, have, you, you get one day, you get a letter uh, telling to Erdogan that uh, don't be stupid which is a thing that you never see, you never saw before. And another day saying Erdogan is a very is a great man, a great friend of mine. So you can easily see today Trump saying that uh, Abdullah Hoti and Alexander Vucic came to the White House, they hugged each other. And next day it will be like, you know, you guys don't be stupid. I'm going to do this and that to you. So I'm, my expectation is if there is another uh, four years of, of Trump, my expectation is that it's going to be very, um, uh, very unpredictable. The foreign policy, especially U.S. Poli uh, policy towards uh, Balkans is going to be very unpredictable. But I, I don't think that Balkans plays a very important role or has, um, takes a very important place in U.S. Pol politics in general. I'm going to disagree, but maybe we agree at the at the same level here, where you're going. We're going to see exactly the same as that we've seen uh, over the last four years for the next four years with a, another with a second uh, Trump administration. So we know exactly what we're going to get. Sure, maybe that's uncertainty. We know we don't know exactly what he's going to do, but we know that there's going to be this manufactured uncertainty, uh, trying to keep everybody off of their game. Maybe it's him, maybe it's uh, President Trump actually keeping everybody else off their game, and that's his game, or maybe it's just everybody's 
un like uh, not sure-footed and that's what's going on you'll continue to see these bilateral uh, engagements you won't see anything more than the, the three parties so a serbia a kosovo a trump uh, president trump you won't see anything more than albania uh, uh, rama coming and meeting president trump in the white house you won't see anything more than these bilateral engagements you won't see you'll continue to see the u.s stepping away from its european partners where what this last week we saw the nine billion euros invested to help encourage this economic union they're going the eu is going about it a completely different way from like trying to encourage cooperation where the u.s is trying to do it like through force through like transactional methods uh through one country and then with the other country and get in order to get them to have an agreement between themselves you'll see the, the figures like grinnell ambassador grinnell going and trying to twist arms to uh leverage the the political will that the u.s has for the areas and how it's going to help that america first policy so it's all so uncertain and unpredictable but we know exactly what's going to happen it's going to be these exact same things uh with a, another trump presidency so i i think i've probably said the same things as you have but i've just said it um, in a more certain way that we know they're going to be uncertain and uh, you have a 30 second sorry bottle <laughs> no, I uh, actually uh, yes, maybe maybe uh, what we can predict is a lack of uh, alliance or um, acting as a team together. Uh, but I, I just I have this this feeling that if that is necessary, uh, if that is what Trump uh, will will be in Trump's interest. I think he could go with it and then, you know, be like, if Trump thinks that he can sell, that he again brought Europe together to help the Western Balkans and he's the leader of all the Europe, maybe he can go for it. But I, I understand where, Daniel, you're, you're coming from and you know, I understand that that's, that's a long stretch. Okay, now let's move to the fun part. Like, let's assume Biden wins. God, please make it happen. How will the policy change? What are the things that will change? Especially in Kosovo. I want, I, I want to focus more on Kosovo. What will change? Will this agreement that happened on the 4th of September go to trash? What will happen? Uh, I'll go ahead and start with this one. Yep. I first want to touch on what happens if President, uh, it becomes President Biden, the Republicans hold the Senate and then the House stays uh, Democratic. That means that domestic priorities in the US are going to be at a complete standstill. There will probably still be zero political will to do anything domestically because they know that they just have to wait two more years to have uh, grow the majority again, have a completely dysfunctional US for another four years, and that's not going to look good on the Democrats. And then so you have another uh, you're more likely going to have the Republican uh, candidate then win again after a one-term Biden. And so uh, while this sounds really bad, it could also be really good for the foreign policy because the only things that a President Biden would do, be able to do under that is executive orders and conduct foreign policy. And, and so this could be really good for somebody, uh, for the nations like Kosovo, because you're going to see strong engagement with 
the, with Europe uh, and South America, all around the world of trying to uh, encourage this joint action because the US won't be able to do anything itself. The President Biden will have his best work and what he's always been great about is building relationships. And I think we'll see him really thrive in that sort of environment. But now let's, uh, uh, I will. Uh, but if we also see that the Senate goes to the Democrats, then I think you're going to see a lot less of a focus on foreign policy besides the international, the big things. So as Erdogan said, the Balkans just aren't that important in the grand it's be just China, for, Russia. For, for America right now. We have so much of our own things in the U.S. that have to be solved that if there's uh, all three houses, if the, all three of the main ones, so the, the Senate, the House, and the presidency are all with the Democrats, it's going to be even more inward focused except for those big engagements and the Balkans will just kind of fall to the side except for um, it'll just we'll throw our weight behind Europe and say, Europe, figure out your backyard. That's where I really see it going and changing with um, Albanian Kosovo. And I think that's especially good for somebody like um, Alban Kurti because the focus will still be on human rights promotion uh, democracy, good governance reforms, and all of the, the places that have been sidelined put behind the White House agendas. So you'll see the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor really taking a bigger step and role within these countries as opposed to everything being run out of uh, INL, all the international narcotics and law enforcement. You'll see less of the emphasis on security, but you'll still see a lot of, like, we're not going to scale back security, but we're just going to also scale up huge with our diplomats, with our um, human rights, with our civil society engagements all across the world. And because we'll have more funding, more ability to hire people into the US government and you know, just the Democratic Party being the party of bigger government and more outward spending and um, international uh, cooperation, I think you'll see a lot more elements for that. So you'll see alignment for Kosovo with the same thing, the economic uh, integration and recognition of Kosovo really being put forward, but in this joint effort, uh, which will be interesting to see if then you have uh, Russia, China uniting behind um, Serbia in order to keep that same power dynamic in the Balkans. Because if you see the US, EU all aligning there, you're going to fundamentally shift the, the Balkans and who knows what the, the repercussions would be from from those changes of a, uh, of a, a Kurti and power. Uh, I, I agree. I agree with, uh, with, with Daniel, although I personally don't see um, a lot of, you know, like personally things that they can do. Like, for example, let's say if, if we analyze it in, in personal levels, such as the Kurti government, and and stuff like that. Yes, Kurt, Kurti and his people. Kurti, I don't know why I'm saying Kurti, but Kurti and his people. Um, Sorry, that's have, my my American not uh, pronouncing uh, Kurti perfectly. No, well, trust me, you you pronounce it better than me. I don't know what was. I told you I'm American, so I'm trying to be more American than the Americans, I guess. <laughs> that's so Albanian. But yes, um, we know that. Uh, people in the Kurti government, they have, some of them have personal relations with Joe Biden and Democratic Party. So I think the, uh, that will be uh, some more access for Alvin Kurti. But I think that 
there are some fundamental problems that will remain in uh, in American foreign policy, whatever ways it goes. So there has there has been done so much damage in American Foreign Service uh, during these four years that it will it will really take a lot of time and a lot of political will to mend those kind of things. I'm talking about human resources at the state at the State Department, uh, the expertise and the knowledge that is being consumed in American foreign policy or um, among American foreign policy professionals. So they will have, um, we know that a lot Don't, of diplomats Just to have give an example the there, I mean, I can tell it, the damage done in foreign policy, I can tell from the distrust, for example, in Albania, that the Albanian people have towards the US embassy right now. I mean, I've never experienced that before, the way the outrage of people towards the US embassy. I think that that's some sort of damage that it has been done by the Trump administration, at least in my opinion. I don't know. So imagine uh, Richard Richard Grano. We know his expertise uh, about about Kosovo and stuff, but he was the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Germany, one of U.S.'s biggest allies, and we know that the German authorities were not happy with Grano's way of doing stuff. So you have many other diplomats that have. Uh, broken a lot of pots in, in, in different types of people. So I think that first that damage needs to be mended. And also the human resources, the people that are going to go to the State Department, that will take some time. And I'm not sure that the uh, Biden administration could does have that time with all the problems, including the pandemic and everything else. But that being said, what I am excited is that uh, Biden, personally knows foreign policy very well. He served as the VP, he served for so many years in, in the Senate, and he ha has been engaged in, in, uh, as a senator in US foreign policy a lot. Moreover, I think that he has a, 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 a team that knows the importance of foreign policy, that knows the importance of strategy in foreign policy, that knows the importance of alliances in foreign policy. So that's what gets me excited. But also remember, again, as I said, um, Balkans is not that important in American foreign policy. It's not as important as we like to think. Yeah. So yes, uh, all the Balkan countries can have some access, uh, some easier access, at least, you know, they will not, I assume they will not be people that will say that the, Kosovo war was a perceived conflict, all right? So yes, there will be people, I mean, more likely there will be people that know where Kosovo is and that it is not in the Middle East. And, but at the same time, it will not be, uh, I don't expect it to be a, a swift change of, okay, now Biden comes, so uh, Kosovo is gonna be, uh, be an important, uh, country or an important uh, policy in the, in the U.S. foreign policy, and then Biden is going to go is going to show to Serbs what they did. No, Serbia's access in Washington D.C. has overpassed that has uh, has been uh, instrumentalized. They have more venues that they can tell their story. So uh, again. As I said, while Kosovars and while Albanians were all uh, drunk because of their victory during the Kosovo uh, 
uh, I mean, after, in, in 1999, with the end of the, of the Kosovo conflict, Serbs have normally done diplomacy, which is what they should do, and have had access in both Republican Party and Democratic Party. My uh, expectation is that there will be more experts that understand everything better, but at the same time, I just think that is going to be a better cooperation between Europe and, and, and America, which in, in, in the first glimpse, without analyzing it very deeply, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I, I just want to highlight one thing you said there, Erdogan, which is so important. It's not going to happen quickly. It's Biden is one reason why he's the candidate for the Democratic Party is because he knows how to run, govern. He knows how to build a government. He's been doing it for so long. He's going to there's been a lot of talk about who his secretary of state would, would be. And that's probably somebody like a, a Susan Rice. So you have these two people and uh, Biden and possibly a Rice type of person who's going to come in and just reassure all of the US allies and who are going to be able to quickly, as quickly as possible, rebuild that foreign service, the civil service of the State Department in order to start implementing uh, a fuller uh, foreign um, diplomatic engagement all across the world and foreign policy. But like you said, we're looking at 18 months to two years at the minimum to build back up this type of uh, service that's going to be needed. There's uh, I, I, taking a, a shooting some uh, statistics, which I don't know what they are, but there's just been huge um, amounts of people leaving both the foreign service and the civil service. It's just like the numbers are staggering. I have so many friends who used to be in the service, both uh, especially the civil service who have, they've just left and you can't easily get all that expertise back in uh, quickly. Just the security checks, the hiring people, the, the hiring people who can hire people, it all just takes so much time. So um, we shouldn't expect too much of a change uh, anytime quickly. And, in and what, what one of the biggest roads in um, Tirana is George Bush uh, Avenue. And there's a statue, the only place outside of the US where there's a statue of Bill Clinton is in uh, Pristina, Kosovo. It's like, so both a tr traditional Republican administration in the future and any Democratic uh, um, administration in the future, they're all going to look out for the best interests of Albania and Kosovo because that's strategic interest is to keep the Balkans stable. Anytime that there's fighting, it's not good for the U.S. because we're still expected, the U.S. is still expected in some way to help prevent uh, conflict. Uh, yes, I, I, I totally agree with you, Daniel. But remember also that a lot of homework falls into the shoulders of the Albanians there. If you have uh, uh, corrupted governments run by Albanians in the Balkans, and then uh, governments that uh, that play different type of politics than we are used to, you know, such as the Albanian and the Kosovo uh, governments uh, making some approaches with Russians or being too much influenced by Turkey, which is all another another topic. You know, sometimes these places uh, and you know Albania and Kosovo are not the um, uh, the places that. American foreign policy leaders or policymakers cannot uh, give up. You know, everything is disposable at the end of uh, the time. Uh, one thing that I wanted to give just a, a quick 
um, example, and again, that can be a whole new discussion, is the, the foreign policy. I'm, uh, at, a, uh, at a conference or a meeting with uh, Secretary Albright, she said, she said something really that, that struck me very much. She said, look, I teach at the uh, School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, which is the, the biggest funnel of, of res human resources in America to the State Department. A lot of people at the State Department come from uh, SFS at Georgetown University. So she said this, people are, are telling me not a lot of students will come from Georgetown to the State Department. And I tell them that's not true. There will always be students, there will always be Americans that want to serve in the foreign service. The thing, <coughs> I'm sorry. The thing is that until now, up until now, the first 10 students, my best 10 students wanted to go in foreign service. Now those students want to go to uh, other institutions, to international institutions. They want to go to uh, private uh, companies. And while there will still be 10 others that are going to go to the State Department or to the Foreign Service, they will not be the best, the best of the best that want to go to the, uh, to the Foreign Service. And we know that American Foreign Service is like a, like a big ship that you know you need the right people, the uh, qualified people to be there to take decisions. And it's difficult now to convince people that, okay, you are a school of foreign service or any other school. So still foreign service is a good place to go because they have lived four years that have told them that, you know, it's, it might not be that good place to go and work. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I, I, I'm guessing here that Albie's wanting us to wrap up, but yeah. I know Erdogan and I could talk forever. But I want to bring you back <laughs> in for a quick, quick question, Albie. Like, we've been talking about the U.S. foreign policy, but who does the governments of Kosovo and the governments of Albania want to see win the U.S. election? What do you think there? <sighs> that is really complicated. Like, for example, in Albania, I mean, our prime, current prime minister, Adi Rama, in, the, in 2016, before the U.S. elections, he declared that Trump winning would be a doom, not only for, Amer for America, but all, also for the entire planet. And then next thing you know, he's in the White House and he's having a photo with Trump smiling and everything. I, with regard to Adirama, Rama, I can't tell. With regard to Kosovo and Erdogan might disagree here. I think that they want Trump to win. I don't know why I have this feeling about um, the Kosovo government, but for the Albanian government, I can tell. I can say that if the DP, win, if Trump wins now and the DP wins, uh, the Democratic Party in Albania wins the elections in in April, I think they will they will be happy with a Republican Party in power, basically just because of ideological views and things. But uh, Albania has shown that it can work. Oh, I mean, also, Albania and Kosovo both have shown that they can work with both sides. Because in Albania and Kosovo, there's no such ideological line in terms of political views, such as right and left, like Edouard knows better. I don't think Albanians and Kosovo, like Albanians in general, like have these, know what right and left means actually. So yeah, I can't really tell about that. I don't have a definite answer on that. Like Albanians are, you can predict Albanians. Like I'm sure that right now many Albanians are like, oh, Trump should win. If Trump loses, Albanians will go in the other side in the, bl in the blink of an eye and we'll be like, no, we always supported this side, but we just, you know, that's what we do. Well, Erdogan, I'll give you the last word, but I'm going to say that 
the people of Kosovo generally want Biden. Uh, Albania and both governments would all prefer to have Trump as another term. I think that's uh, where it would be the, the breakdown. But uh, Erdogan, you're, you're the expert here. Final word. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, I don't know, you know it, these are all assumptions, but I think that the Kosovo people, I think, would want um, a, Joe, a Joe Biden president. Uh, that's, I agree with you. Uh, when we talk about Kosovo government, which government? So we have a government that is the government only because Grenell uh, twisted some hands. So I'm sure that they would want um, a Grenell presidency, not only a Trump presidency. And then we have a government that had to leave because of Granol and Trump. So I'm sure they wanted Joe Biden. And also there are people in the uh, Kurti uh, circles that have personal relations, which is, I think is very good if they can reach, um, if, if they can uh, reach out to Biden personally. And then we have the biggest player, Hashim Thaci, which I don't think it makes um, any difference from, for him. I think that he's going to, uh, he's, gonna, he's going to make any deal with anyone as long as he secures whatever he can secure, as long as he secures even one day of his uh, interest, of, of, of his survival. Um, I think that he has a, now he has a good, so traditionally he has very good relations with Biden. Biden has called him the George Washington of, uh, of Kosovo or something like that, which, you know, I think because of Biden being too much straightforward or too, I don't know what's going on, but I don't think that was a very good thing to say uh, for George Washington, that is. Uh, but, um, and I think tra traditionally, Thaji has good relation with him. So I don't think he will have a problem with Biden being, although in his mind, he must think of, you know, what happens if Biden decides that I'm, a, I'm, I'm disposable. And right now, he, I think, has good relations and he has managed to be on the same page with Trump. So I don't think he will have any problem with Trump continuing this, uh, continue being the president, because he, I think, has reached the vibe with him. Hey, guys, it has been, I'm going to wrap up now. We went past the one hour mark. It's one hour and oh 20 God. minutes actually that we'll, we've been podcasting right now. So, I mean, it, it was nice talking to you guys. Thank you very much for being on this episode of Rule of Albania. I'm looking forward to have other episodes with you in, in the future. I'm sure we'll have many corporations together, not only on podcasts. So thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Albi. Thank you, Albi, for, for, for having me. And thank you for doing I, I really appreciate what you're doing with with this podcast i think this is something uh, very inspiring uh, for everyone uh, in albania and in kosovo i know that it's been listened a lot and i always enjoy talking to you and daniel it was nice talking to you again I'm looking forward to our next conversation absolutely me too